live. <laughs> okay. And I can Very tell you live is working. Very so, exciting. Um, yes. Hi, everybody uh, who's here so far. I know we'll probably get some more folks joining us. And of course, we're on Facebook Live. So those who are on Facebook Live, welcome. Um, and actually, it's still connecting over there. So um, it doesn't actually start for another four minutes because we're early. It's exciting. But we like to get in and chat. So, um, mm -hmm. so Mike, what's your favorite topic of, of the, this week? <laughs> Besides, oh, we're going to drop the politics and hire. Actually, one of the things we're going to talk about is, is what's going on in Notre Dame. Right. The president of Notre Dame uh, yes. get, catching uh, catching COVID at uh, looks like the, what was close to a super spreader event in the Rose Garden or That's close. It is a super spreader event. <laughs> yeah, I think it's whether it was actually in the Rose Garden. It's sort of like uh, it's like Clue. You know, was it Colonel Mustard in the Rose Garden or was it in the parlor during another private session? Like there's a lot of, uh, you know, in lieu of contact tracing, we have photos and a lot of speculation around who caught what when. But uh, but yeah, as a university president, uh, the recommendation, uh, I think we have a strong recommendation to uh, wearing masks and uh, engaging in social distancing uh, very much in line with how they are recommending that for their campuses and for their students. So uh, so yeah, yeah, that's an interesting topic. I think we're going to spend a little time. Uh, I'm sure you have some takes yes. on that, Terry. Yes, yeah. Uh, what, what else? What else is going on? Uh, well, I mean, the football uh, we were talking a little yeah. bit about cam newton testing although it looks like the nfl at least have averted uh what i thought was going to be really more of a scheduling nightmare because uh, they mm -hmm. actually got the game in canceled mm -hmm. one game postponed one game mm -hmm. uh, so that that certainly was interesting um there hasn't been a lot of asu gsv since last time we talked but i think it did pick up again today and tomorrow so like that's still still going on. Uh, there's just so many conferences, so much stuff going on. Uh, you know, it's, I feel like you have to be registered for, for like two or three webinars a day just to keep up. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and then make sure, but make sure you have 12 Pacific three Eastern circled on your calendar. <laughs> Absolutely. You Every know? Week. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and then we have a sponsor. We have a, we, I believe we have a sponsor this week. Is that correct, yes. Harry? And we do have a, actually, so this is my week to geek. Well, I probably geek out every week. Sorry. I'm just a, a, a former provost who's a total nerd. But um, yeah, I'm really excited about this product called Course Tune because when I was a provost, and I'll talk about this more later, um, mm -hmm. I ha had all kinds of issues with basically what's happening is accreditors are requiring institutions, no matter what size you are, to have course learning outcomes. And um, so I had to, first of all, get my faculty to understand what a learning outcome is. Yeah. <laughs> and then how do we keep track of them? And, you know, we, we had forms and things like that. But, you know, we had no way to visualize or to you know, be able to pull things together easily across different programs. And so right. I'm excited about Course Tune because it, it allows you to do that. So we'll be talking to um, the folks uh, from course tune for a bit today and then uh, yeah. Rob Gibson and I um so Rob is one of my buddies from yeah are we uh, are we at the appointed hour is it is it time to talk officially about uh Rob you know are folks joining uh, is it uh one more minute so okay okay folks, folks a minute we've it's got exciting. the so the officially we we are supposed to start in 50 seconds so oh okay I'm, I'm not gonna get too far into it but no no our chit chat so people who join early can have something to, to look at. Yeah. yeah and, <laughs> and feel free to feel free to join us in the chat if you have uh, questions. Also, there is an ask a question button down at yeah. the bottom of the interface if you did want to go that route. Uh, and we'll try to keep an eye on the chat. Tarrant is doing a nice job uh, keeping an eye on the chat. We're keeping an eye on what's going on there. So if you did want to engage, uh, you can certainly ask questions uh, either of those ways. Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to bring that in. And uh, and yeah, so how far back you and uh, you and Rob uh, have been working together for for many moons? Only about a year. Uh, he actually was one of the first participants in our um, uh, higher ed administration course. So ah, got it. At Brighter Higher Ed, right? So you've been. Uh, you, are you officially now Brighter? I thought I thought I saw that where you're actually rebranding. Uh, I see it behind yeah. you a little bit as well, but it's Brighter Higher Ed. Yeah, so when I first, well, we're, and we're official, we, oh, actually, there we go. officially say and we are, see. Uh, we are here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, for those who are actually, it looks like we're still having a little trouble with uh, Facebook Live. I'm looking at it and it's not starting. So, 
You know, maybe there's a little latency. Connecting yeah. live yeah. video. So we'll see if that, that starts or not. But in any case, um, yeah, so welcome, everybody. Um, we This is our official start to This Week in Higher Ed. Um, so I, yeah, so I, I was talking about our uh, Rob Gibson, who's joining us today, and we've known each other for about a year. And uh, and we are live on Facebook. We have confirmation. Okay, we oh, are live yeah. on Facebook. Thank uh, yeah. you. Um, so uh, in any case, uh, yeah, we it's been um, an interesting year. Uh, we started the Center for Higher Education Leadership a year ago, and now we're transitioning to our new uh, branding, which is um, Brighter Higher Ed. And so over the last year, we've been developing courses and and things like that. And, um, you know, it's been a real, you know, uh, interesting time to do that, given that we're in the middle of COVID, right? Yes, right. <laughs> so, um, in any case, uh, yeah. I, and so Mike and I, for those of you who haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we have been um, talking about what the latest is in higher ed. And so mm -hmm. we have a few topics we want to start, but um, I did want to mention that you know, we have a, a Course Tune is our sponsor today, and I geek out as a provost about that kind of stuff because I love seeing visualizations of how we do our course learning outcomes and so on. Mm -hmm. and, and Rob and I are going to talk about that a bit later. Yeah. So Mike, yeah. you can kick yeah. us off. Yeah, I can. I can kick us off, and uh, and then also the the talk to Rob about instructional design, learning objectives. That's kind of his background, yeah. uh, among other things, and he's working at Emporia State. Uh, college in Kansas. Uh, so we'll get some of uh, Rob's perspective. So you definitely want to stick around for that. But but we start with a bit more of a what's in the news uh, segment, which is uh, we figured that uh, 2020 would have no shortage of new and interesting things for us to talk about. And lo and behold, uh, believe it or not, uh, a week ago when we were talking, we didn't anticipate the uh, spread of the coronavirus, we were looking more at campuses as a place to be concerned about. Uh, and it is something that is still very much a, a, a topic of concern for higher ed, you know, trying to understand how to respond to COVID on, camp on campus, how is it spreading, et cetera. But, uh, but over the last week, we saw that there was uh, what seems to be the equivalent of a super spreader event, although who knows yeah. how you define something as a super spreader event. I'm sure people are talking about that. Uh, on in the Rose Garden in the White House, uh, I was joking earlier. It's a little bit Colonel Mustard uh, with a lead pipe in the in the salon, but uh, <laughs> but somehow, some way, many members of the Trump administration did contract uh, COVID uh, nineteen. In addition to obviously the president uh, was big news that he caught it and uh, wound up going to the, being hospitalized for it. Chris Christie's been hospitalized. Uh, Kellyanne Conway. The list uh, the list literally goes on and on. But higher ed was not insulated from the this uh, spreading event. The uh, the president of Notre Dame University, uh, you know, the the Supreme Court justice was from Notre Dame, uh, so she, uh, you know, the president of the university being there uh, in some ways did make some sense, uh, you know, since she was. Well, an and academic. not just that, but there were eighteen faculty from the law school who were there. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. yeah so, so so big contingent, but uh, but not practicing. Although they were outside, they were very much packed together. Many folks, including uh, the president, did not appear to be wearing masks. I don't think he was. Yeah. So it all becomes like a CSI episode. But uh, but yeah, any uh, perspective uh, from from your side? I know you're pretty plugged into folks in higher ed. This was, uh, I think, this was pushing some hot buttons, uh, perhaps yeah. out there. And uh, I'd love to get your perspective on this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting, you know, to see how the you know, politics is converging with higher ed in this particular instance. Um, I mean, the students at Notre Dame started, a, some started a petition calling for the resignation of, of the president. Um, but I also think, you know, it, it ties into this broader issue of how do we maintain, um, you know, the, the measures on campuses when we have people, you know, I mean, the president explained, you know, he mm -hmm. was, uh, they did a test, and he said he was mm -hmm. he was negative. So he, you know, he they told him he, it was okay to take his mask off. But you know, the dean of the law school kept his mask on, mm -hmm. and there were people in the audience who who did keep their masks on. Mm -hmm. And you know, as we know now, it, it, what what's really interesting to me is, you know, I was 
watching this story over the weekend. And so you have this whole list of people who are, who, you know, tested positive after this event. And then, you know, there's all these people in politics and then the president of Notre Dame. Right. And I just have to believe that it, I mean, obviously it's a PR nightmare for mm -hmm. the institution. Um, and, you know, it, it goes back to this issue of, you know, how do we manage expectations of students and parents? And, and you know, if you're going to tell students that you're, um, you know, they're going to be penalized if they aren't yeah. on schools and, you know, so anyway, I, I yeah. think that it's a real, it's problematic for so many different reasons. Yeah. I know my, my friends who are, are, are at Notre Dame are, are disappointed in, in what has happened. Yeah. And there was, I mean, I saw the article in Inside Higher Ed in particular was talking about the backlash in part because uh, I think he's a, John Jenkins is his name, right? Yeah. I, I believe. Uh -huh. Yeah. Reverend, Reverend John Jenkins. So uh, I, he had also implemented relatively strict COVID requirements, uh, you know, in terms of his own student body who were on campus, but they had to stay in their, their dorm rooms, et cetera. Uh, and uh, that's, that's a little tease. So that's, uh, if, you, if, you, if you liked what you saw there briefly, that's uh, Rob, our guest, he's gonna be back on uh, in, in a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, I think it was partly the hypocrisy of it where, you know, if you're gonna be uh, a real strict advocate of uh, safe practices to prevent infection on campus, you know, I, I think there is an expectation that you would follow through that way. Another place, another place that I've seen uh, some some news coverage also is some uh, administrative officials are are actually living in the dorms. Which um, I know that's something I think we both talked about, uh, maybe not on this show, but that is, you know, the counterexample I think is actually shoulder to shoulder, uh, six feet wearing masks, shoulder to shoulder, mm -hmm. uh, but actually living through the experience that you're asking your students to live through. Um, that that. There is an opportunity to get positive press coverage uh, by, well, actually, by. Yeah, I, I think there's lots of, well, there's opportunities. Obviously, the media isn't necessarily focusing on these. But I did see right. an article recently that talked about, you know, there's a bunch of institutions that are doing well on this. And actually, we're going to talk about that more next week, because um, mm -hmm. next week we're going to talk about these issues around contact tracing and, um, you know, how campuses are managing all of this. But, you know, I can tell you my son's campus, Lewis and Clark, hasn't had a positive case on campus since the end mm -hmm. of August. And at, mm -hmm. the, at that point, they only had three. Um, right. You know, I've heard from actually, uh, when we did our show a couple weeks ago, we um, had some folks, uh, I, and I'm going to forget the name of the institution, but, um, you yeah, know, they were talking about that they had very few cases. What yeah. we're not so the, the interesting thing to me is we're not hearing the stories, uh, and I've been complaining about this, <laughs> of institutions that are doing it well. Right. And realistically, you know, if we had better, uh, you know, kind of coordination at the national level, we should be sharing these stories of what's working. Yeah. And what frustrates me is, you know, even this morning, we, there was a story in the LA Times about, um, you know, kids are going to campuses and... Uh, staying in the apartments and so on. They are there, so the campus may be closed and they're in dorms, but they're they're living around it. But yep. you know, so they, we're hearing these stories, and those are the large institutions that are having the the problems with um, you know increasing numbers of COVID. But we're not hearing mm -hmm. the stories of the campuses, the small campuses around. Yeah. The and that, there was a story that that did talk about this, and actually, um, you know, I think we're going to be hearing more and more. Here's the institutions that yeah. have done. Right, and done it I well. saw. I saw there was a PBS. I think it was the PBS NewsHour covered Colby College uh, yeah, exactly. in Maine, and mm -hmm. it, but it you know it it's less sensational, less likely to go viral is to say this person's been doing it good, but mm -hmm. uh, doing it well. Excuse me, uh, but uh, but this is part of part of the even your uh, your rebranding as brighter higher ed is you know like try to tell some of the the stories of hope yeah. and inspiration because we don't need to all just break bad and. Uh, and go into uh, you know how how everything is broken. Things are really challenging, but a lot of folks are are rallying to the challenge, and uh, and that's part of. In addition to learning outcomes and instructional design, I think we want to get a little perspective from Rob in terms of his experience. Uh, and then same thing, uh, you know, anyone in chat, if you do want to, if you do know anything, or if you want to reach out to uh, to us through social, you know, Terry's got a big Facebook following. So if you did want to pick up there, but we'd love to hear more examples and hopefully incorporate some uh, positive stories into some silver linings, at least into yeah. uh, how we're covering uh, COVID. Uh, but it is obviously, there was no way we could not cover the fact that 
the president of the United States was at Walter Reed for a few days. And, uh, and you know, it's gonna, it's likely going to continue to be crazy for the next month, right? The election right. is, well, is about a month away and things are, it's going to be hard to keep the, the craziness in the, the political universe uh, separate from the challenges, understanding where higher ed is heading. Uh, and then to your point, the fact that this infection happened at a political event um, mm -hmm. is an example that you can't really fully separate these things. That's right. Um, but uh, um, yeah. Yeah. And the, the other thing that's happening, you know, where the higher ed is, is in intersecting with politics is, of course, you know, voting because right. the campuses are places where people vote, students want to vote, you know, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of stories out there about uh, states that try to just, you know, don't make it easy for students to vote. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's been a big push to, uh, you know, basically allow students to vote where they are on, you know, where they're going to school. And there's mm -hmm. some states that have, you know, pushed against that. Um, I know um, at, in the state of Texas, Prairie View, um, has been one of the institutions that's really been pushing to get their kids, their students, I should say, to vote um, and fighting the state, which is, you know, trying to make it more difficult. Yeah. And historically, you know, voter registration was more of a, a civic concept. It was less of a political concept. So it was sort of like on campus, it's a time when students are yeah. becoming independent citizens with the right to vote. It's mm -hmm. the, you know, the aspiration of higher ed should be to create citizens who understand what they're doing in the world. Yeah. One of the things that they'd be doing would be voting. So, again, it wasn't viewed as a partisan concern. And I think a lot of folks are concerned that it's starting to feel partisan uh, to be activated against registering, uh, you know, young people to vote on campus. Yeah. And, you know, I think that um, and, and, and checking on the, the comments as we go along. So please continue with your comments. But, um, you know, to, so I'm a political scientist. So, you know, obviously I think that it's, you know, it's important for people and actually not just because I'm a political scientist, but I, you know, it's an area I focus on. Um, but yeah, voting is, is clearly an important thing, um, regardless of how you vote. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. there's plenty of, uh, you know, there's, you know, I, as a professor, um, have never made assumptions about, um, you know, my st students, you know, political preferences or anything like that. And, you know, I go into the classroom trying to make sure that students understand that this, you know, what I'm presenting to you is, you know, important facts and, mm -hmm. um, you know, but we, I, you know, there are many, many uh, higher education institutions are, um, you know, trying to be engaged, but then, um, you know, it, Taryn mentions the town, um, you know, it, it's, it's a town, it becomes a town gown issue. So, you know, I think sometimes if it's, especially if it's a small town, um, they're worried about the influence that student voters might have given that they sure. don't get there you know, year round. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but on the, the other side, it's, um, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, we want to encourage people to vote. But yeah, it is. It's, it's also interesting with the move to online learning. Uh, if an 18 year old is registering now, is she going to be registering at home because she's less likely to be going away to campus and registering in in a faraway place is it's another interesting question. So so those topics are going to continue to be uh, zeitgeisty, as I like to say. So like they'll continue to be bubbling up to uh, the collective uh, uh, consciousness. And, and also I think higher ed, uh, just as a, a space that is capturing national attention um, in light of the pandemic is another reason why we wanted to start this show. And it's another reason why, um, you know, it's becoming more front page news. Like I know, uh, you know, the, the tracking of the virus and tracking the virus specifically on campus is something that is uh, had had the president not been hospitalized, uh, you know, it, it would have been right at the top of the front page, like or even our front pages, if you look at stuff online nowadays. But, but these issues are certainly bubbling up, and um, you know, I think now we're starting to see uh, more uh, clusters emerging on campuses that are resulting in uh, what Brian Alexander uh, has called, you know, toggle terms, where beginning on campus and then, uh, you know, beginning in person or hybrid and then shifting to 
entirely online until things settle down. Uh, more on a personal level here in New York, uh, you know, there have been hotspots identified that have gone from, we were planning to bring in particularly K through eight students, K through, you know, five, uh, you know, in the past week. And then because we've seen an uptick in the numbers in some zip codes, uh, there's a lot of activity in New York now to, to stop having students go to their public K-12 schools for fear of spreading uh, the virus. And there's also questions of, you know, do you shut down the, the, uh, the businesses in that location as well? So, you know, I think that level of uh, what I've called uh, like whack-a-mole response, you know, something pops up and then you have to be reactive to shut it back down. Uh, we're starting to see that. And um, I would anticipate that continuing really throughout the fall semester. I can't see anything uh, really pointing to the contrary. And uh, there's more talk now of the second wave too. Like you are starting to hear yeah. this maybe, maybe this is what the second, this is how the second wave starts. Folks are just gonna start moving inside more and things like uh, sports and uh, higher education, K-12, um, a lot of these things that bring people into the same spaces, businesses are reopening in many parts of the country where it used to be closed. Um, there's a lot of concern out there and it's definitely something, um, you know, we share that concern. Uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, anything else uh, yeah. you wanted to make sure we hit or do we want to bring our bring our guest on? Well, one, one more thing I want to mention is that, you know, this is about the time that we're going to start hearing about enrollments. And mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of institutions, um, enrollments have, have been stable compared to mm -hmm. last year. So that's the good mm -hmm. news. Um, mm -hmm. There are some that are seeing declines and um, you know, what, it'll still be a few more weeks before we know the full story. But um, mm -hmm. I think that there is, um, you know, some good news out there. Um, yeah. that, uh, enrollments are, are staying fairly stable. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, the only other thing I, I would mention before we bring our, our guest in is that, um, you know, the uh, in terms of athletics, um, you know, to come back to football and so on, uh, we are seeing, um, you know, so far, oops, where'd I go? <laughs> I am. Um, as it's uh, so far so good with uh, college football. Um, we haven't heard of, you know, major outbreaks, unlike what you, what you mentioned at the beginning um, mm -hmm. with the outbreaks in, in the NFL. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's encouraging. I know the, the Pac-12 and, and some of the others are going to start up again soon. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think that there's, you know, kind of that we're in this weird, you know, it's, it's a, almost like a toggle, not toggle term, but, you know, how, you know, where are we going in terms of, you know, sports and athletics is, is still pretty up in the air, but it's yeah. looking like they're, they're, you know, successfully executing, you know, some, some uh, programs. Um, and, yeah. you know, the next question is going to be basketball. And right. Well, and, and, and I think the question is also like, in light of, the, the speed with which the White House thing spread, if something does hit a college football team, you know, how quickly could they just be knocked out, you know? And mm -hmm. so, so I think there's a lot of, you know, the sports fan of me is very pleased that it looks like the NBA is going to finish its season. Uh, you know, I think you're not done until you're done these days. And it's just a very fraught time, which is why even if enrollments are, um, you know, close to expectation, the experiences that, students and families are going to have and faculty are going to have is going to be very different than any other year we've seen in the past. So, you know, how much are folks learning? How much are they going to have to catch up in the future? How are we measuring whether there is learning loss? You know, all that I think is going to be tied to the conversation we're going to pick up on uh, shortly with Rob. But before we picked up with Rob, I think we wanted to bring uh, Diane from uh, Course Tune on. All right. I think, can they bring themselves in? Uh, let me see. Let me see. I saw Rob before. Oh, oh, yep. There's Rob. Still, there's Rob. And, and then, uh, and there's Diane. Look at that. Look at that. Hello. Yeah. So I just want to mention that we're we're covering most of the country. I'm, I'm over nice. here in California. Yeah. Mike, New York. Rob, you're in uh, outside of uh, which city? <laughs> um, I'm just outside of Kansas City. Not That's right. Kansas City. And Diane, where are you? I'm in mountain time. I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah. So we do ah. every single time zone. Nice. <laughs> Good job, I covering the country. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. 
So Diane, tell us something about uh, that. Well, I've been geeking out about course tune. So tell us, um, give us your perspective on what course tune is and, and why we should be interested in it. Thank you so much um, for this opportunity. I've been tweeting out um, via the course tune uh, handle that's at course tune um, for Twitter um, followers. Um, some of the conversations that you guys have been having so many great themes. This year is unprecedented. And I think that oh, like, sorry, that's part of the bingo card. You said the word unprecedented. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's great. And I think that in every aspect of our lives, we're asking ourselves, what's the plan? What's the plan for me? What's the plan for our school? What's the plan for this course? What's the plan for this program? And Tune is really a dynamic platform that takes a very, very visual collaborative approach for knowing what the plan is from a curriculum standpoint knowing what the structure is for a course, what the assessment alignment is for the course, but also for the program. What are we offering across our institution? What are we offering as a college within an institution? So like the College of Business or the College of Medicine, um, really being able to point teams, cross-functional teams back to a, a, a single source where they can see what are we offering and what is the structure of the learning journeys uh, that we're offering our students so we can better articulate to our students what is the plan here? <laughs> How are we helping them get from A to B? Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that's Course Tune in a nutshell. And uh, this year of, of all years, it's it's just even more important to have that plan from a curricular standpoint. We're talking yeah, about institutional alignment and a mindset yeah. of, of alignment um, across the institution. Yeah, so so Dan, just one quick follow-up. Uh, who is CourseTune uh, designed for? Like who typically uh, do you do you expect to use it? What 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 user profiles are out there for for using CourseTune? That's such a fantastic question. It's a very unique um, software and we built it. I'm one of the co-founders of course tune and we built it with multidisciplinary users in mind. This idea that, um, you know, multiple teams across an institution that don't typically collaborate can come and collaborate here. So the office of the provost or president, um, admissions, uh, program chairs, curriculum committees, the instructional design team is typically at the core mm -hmm. of who's using CourseTune and really managing the curriculum development and continuous improvement process mm -hmm. so that all of these other teams can come in and, and really benefit from those visuals, the data, the reports, and the visual analytics approach. Um, and of course, our faculty, our instructors and support staff, um, it's a tremendous um, tool and value for them. So what we'll see is like each of these teams will contribute something to CourseTune in their space. And then what the tool does is it brings it all together mm -hmm. um, so that you can start to see how does one thing that one team over here is doing, maybe the assessment team is doing this over here, how does that impact all of our programs over here that are related to that, tied to that. And we can't usually see those connections because this work typically lives in spreadsheets, mm -hmm. hundreds of spreadsheets across the institution. And we keep them mostly on people's desktops or right. maybe in a drive that is not mm -hmm. easily accessible, right? Or worse, and often the case, uh, printed out in a three ring binder sitting on someone's bookcase uh, wow. at the office that we're all locked out of right now, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So we're bringing that into a, you know, easy access web browser, you know, anytime, anywhere, log right in. That's great. Yeah. And for those who are interested, uh, we did have uh, Maria Anderson on as a guest last week to go go deeper on her experiences and deeper on CourseTune. And I think we'll probably want to get a little bit of Rob's perspective as well on his experience with CourseTune and software like it. But uh, but yeah, Diane, thank you. Uh, thank you for the rundown and thanks for the sponsorship from CourseTune. Folks can see the links to CourseTune in the, the chat and hopefully can uh, learn a little more there. And, uh, and I think we'll be saying uh, goodbye to Diane. So thanks for joining us, Diane. And then uh, My pleasure. 
Yeah, yeah, she'll still be there in chat, and then we'll be picking up uh, more with uh, with uh, Rob. So, uh, so Rob, welcome to uh, this week in uh, higher education. Hi, Mike. Hi, Terry. It's great to be Hi. here. Thank you for inviting me. So yeah. if you're not following me and Rob and Mike, of course, on LinkedIn, you have to, because if you want to see what's really the most important stuff in, uh, you know, higher ed and the news and all that. Well, Terry, you're, you're yeah, you're, I'm a big fanboy, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> seriously. I mean, but you, you are just, you're just, you're just awesome. I, I love following your, your musings and you and I are completely in sync um philosophically and politically and everything else so i want to mention yeah. about rob is you know we found each other on linkedin and actually um you know that's been the way a lot of us have connected and and um you know i think the interesting thing is that you know we've i've at least have been able to follow this evolution from pre-covid to, to post-covid and rob has been so engaged in online and remote learning and not, not just that i'll just quickly mention he's actually helping to develop face masks and and mm -hmm. things, you know, 3d printing so he's got a really broad range of things so that's why i really encourage you to follow him because he's doing some really interesting stuff but i want to come back to the online learning and and you know what i geek out about mostly with being able to follow more visual because i'm a visual person and you know to be able to see learning outcomes and where we have holes you know especially with online learning because i think one of the problems with this situation and diane alluded to this you know we're no longer walking down the hallways and um you know talking to each other and you know connecting that way so you know normally even if you just have a spreadsheet you know you can talk to each other about oh i'm teaching this class so now that we're all teaching well not all but most of us are teaching online um you know it, it seems like that is another additional you know barrier to being able to focus on you know pulling together around a certain learning outcomes mm -hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. So, so like everybody else, this last summer we spent, you know, the majority of our lift was trying to to migrate, you know, a lot of the faculty that had not really taught online or really significantly online, let's put it that way, uh, over to this new format. Like everybody else, I mean, that's not unique to us. We were doing the same thing. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we did to, to I think, to help buffet that just a little bit. Is that we're um, we're real big into quality matters, and I noticed that yeah. that Deb Adair is on this call from Quality Matters. So if I misspeak, she's gonna she's gonna <laughs> smack my hand here. But um, um, you know the the nice thing about that that rubric or that methodology, that process mm -hmm. is that it it you know of course it just basically sort of guides people through the process of expressing. Uh, the, the learning objectives, both at the course level and the module level and even down to the activity level. And so, you know, we spent a lot of the time this summer trying to help the faculty just to, to kind of get their head around that entire process, because I'm going to be kind of frank here and say something that's probably mm -hmm. a little politically incorrect. But I think that I think a lot of a lot of the faculty, the professoriate preparation process um, is it really focuses on the subject matter expertise, the skill expertise. I don't think they necessarily intersect well with the teaching and learning part of all of that. Mm -hmm. um, if you mention what Bloom's taxonomy is to, to the average PhD, they'll look at your cross-eyed. Like I've oh. never even heard of that. They don't even know what pedagogy means. Sorry. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it could be, it could be something like that as well. I mean, the, the terms outcomes, and objectives tend to get sort of cross-combobulated, right? So mm -hmm. we, we try and unbundle that terminology and that phraseology so that people understand when they're designing a course what it means to design for outcomes mm -hmm. and what it means to design for learning objectives. And of course, your your office of institutional research is going to be very interested. Your you know your assessment office is going to be very interested in outcomes because that's what they have to report up through the feds. But at the course level really what we're looking at what quality matters is concerned about are more of the objectives so we're looking at the inputs and of course the outcomes are the outputs and that's typically sort of how i kind of break that down just a little bit with faculty yeah. um 
So, and there's, and there's structure, there's methodology, there's, there's wording that you would use, you know, with, with um, uh, phraseology that actually is measurable. So there's mm-hmm. a, there's a method to all of that. And I, I don't think that, you know, once, once we kind of made this pivot over to online, you know, suddenly now we had to really kind of do a deep dive into these otherwise face-to-face courses. And I don't think that a lot of faculty in, in all cases, not all, but some, really had thought about those learning objectives. I mean, maybe they knew what they were and maybe they were actually teaching to them, you know, kind mm-hmm. of kind of on a superficial level. Mm-hmm. But when you had to sort of write them down and express them and then show them to students, that kind of took on a whole different dimension to their teaching and their course design process. So all of that was a little bit of an epiphany for a lot of faculty, right? So they're like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> now I see how you actually you know, express objectives and then kind of work. We use the backward design model. So you design backward to actually uh, build out the, uh, the activities to meet the outcomes, that kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. And then, and then Rob, just to flesh out for our viewers who may not know your background, um, what are you doing? Where are you now? What, what's your role and how are, how are you intersecting with faculty and, and any, any perspective on that? I think it'd be helpful. Well, just real briefly, um, uh, I don't want to bore you too much, but um, so I, you know, Terry and I have talked about this a lot. I've, I've been kicking around this business now for longer than I care to admit. This is my, um, gosh, third, third, fourth decade, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I saw kind of the, the rise of online, of, you know, very early course developer um, back in the mid 90s. And I'm going to mm-hmm. date myself, but back when we were using a product called Mosaic Browser, mm-hmm. back if you remember that. Sure. Um, before the learning management system was a thing, we were designing courses all by hand, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so been in this business a long time, seen a lot of the evolution over the years. Um, I'm currently the, um, the director of a group. We have an instructional design group, and then we have a, another branch that's the learning spaces group. But they actually, surprisingly, they had, there's some intersection and overlap there because uh, particularly in COVID now with high flex, our, mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. campus faculty have had to learn to integrate the online dimension into their face-to-face dimension. And that has mm-hmm. a, that overlaps with technology in the classroom as well. So, so mm-hmm. there's actually a su- surprising bit of permutation between those two groups. You wouldn't think there would be, but there actually is. Yeah. And, and I imagine there's a lot more, uh, it, it depends on the university, how they're structured and how they're resourced on the learning technology side and the instructional design side. I'd love to get some perspective from both you and Terry on that. Like, it sounds like, you know, you're at Emporia State in Kansas. Sounds like they have made an investment in your function and, you know, you have resources at your disposal. You've been doing this for a while, which is great, but it's not always uh, consistently handled at different universities. So I'd love to get uh, some perspective on, you know, who's doing it right, how might it be structured, uh, and then places where it may be challenging because it might not be resourced uh, as well as you'd like. Boy, you know that's that's such a great point, Mike. You know, I in in reading a lot of the um, the listservs and and folks on Educaz and other areas, uh, it's you know it's it's disappointing, it's surprising, disappointing how many institutions, particularly smaller, privates, mm-hmm. and a lot of the community colleges actually, are just very um, resource poor when it comes mm-hmm. to the human personnel. You know, the instructional designer is often the person that fix, fixes the printers, yeah. you know, on yeah. the side mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, uh, there, in fact, there was one institution that I was working with on the side where they had one librarian for the entire college, one. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, how do you do that? She says, well, I just have to close at five like everybody else. And everything else is online, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, there's there's more of those types of examples out there that I think we care to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's fewer of the large R1s with these, you know, enormous departments to help faculty yep. out. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot more that I think that are, that are running their shop with less than three people. You yeah. Know? And, yeah, I have to say, even at some of the bigger institutions I've been at, you know, it wasn't like it was, it was the norm to go and talk to the instructional designer about, about your course. Um, right. It's funny, I did a little Twitter poll of, a couple of months ago where I asked, you know, how many people, yeah, obviously unscientific, but about 150 people over half didn't know what instructional design was. Um, right. Specific, specified faculty. And this, right. back to the training issue again, Rob, I mean, you know, we know that um, people come in as subject matter experts. They don't necessarily 
are, are trained on things like instructional design and, and so on. And then on top of that, you have, and one of the things we're focusing on at Brighter Higher Ed is helping smaller institutions come together. You know, I've been writing over and over and again um, you know, in different venues, but especially LinkedIn about the idea that we need to um, pull together uh, a different, you know, small institutions, so that we can get a, you know economies of scale. Uh -huh. You know, yeah. and, and like we are starting to see that. So some of the OPMs, um, online program management companies, are coming, you know, coming in and helping institutions. But we need more of that. And mm -hmm. yeah, the, the bottom line is is innovation. You know, it's interesting because you've got these pressures coming from the accreditors, and that's why quality matters is you know around. They they they're helping institutions figure out how to do this these things around outcomes and objectives and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the accreditors are starting to really require institutions to say, tell us, you know, you have to show us that students are, are learning what you say they're learning. Yeah. <laughs> you can't yeah. just say they pass this exam. That's not enough. And, mm -hmm. and that's why, you know, we have to be more specific and intentional about what a student is learning in a class. And then we have to say how we're assessing that. That's where the assessment, mm -hmm. and that's you know, one of the first things we did with our, our uh, uh, content that uh, when we were still the Center for Higher Education Leadership was an assessment guide. Because I knew that so many faculty just haven't had the chance to really understand that the way they should. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but again, the resource issue, I mean, it's almost as if we've got our, our priorities reversed. And, and I really emphasize that we need to, you know, not only just uh, you know train faculty, but hang on to faculty and get away from you know, give more support to adjuncts. I mean, we're we're moving more and more into yep. adjuncts, and that's why having tools that can allow even an adjunct to step in and see where their course fits into that broader perspective of of a program is so huge, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And there and, there was a, there was a lot of um, just kind of building on that too. There was a lot of thought and press in the spring about how online education was terrible. And you still hear a lot of that to this day. And the reality is a lot of the emergency remote teaching that happened in the spring was pretty terrible because faculty were just trying to get their lives together, let alone migrate quickly to online, let alone how confused and troubled students may have been. But I'd love to get both of your perspectives on how online education uh, maybe got a bad rap uh, in the spring and the initial response to uh, to COVID and how there are some opportunities to get online education right, kind of build on some of what you were just talking about. You know, both of you were talking about around good learning objectives, good, good course design, uh, you know, good uh, teaching practices and really support for faculty. But that takes time, that takes thoughtful ex execution. So I'd love to maybe uh, maybe begin with you, Rob, and then, then hear from, from Terry, like what, uh, what does it take to do it right? What are, what are you seeing out there? And how was how was the spring cycle maybe a, a bit of a black eye that we're going to have to respond to in terms of online learning? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I was really worried as we made that pivot back in the spring that this was really going to do um, some indelible damage to online learning and online education. Uh, I, I was I was frankly, and I think Terry and I may have talked about this online. I was concerned that this could set online learning back about 20 years because wow. you know it's just going to be the damage is going to be irreparable in some cases. You know, there's a there's a long and storied body of empirical research um, which is called the No Significant Difference Body Research. You know, it kind of encapsulates a lot of the studies which go back at least two decades. Uh, which have to do with, um, you know, sort of comparing the, uh, the learning outcomes of students in, in comparable cohorts, both online and face-to-face. And, -face. And, and basically, there's no statistical significant difference between the learning outcomes of those two populations. Now, mm -hmm. that said, that was, I think, when our conditions were a little bit different, right? So that we're, we're actually comparing courses which were designed for online learning versus mm -hmm. courses that were designed for face-to-face. -face. Obviously, this pivot sort of upended all of that and, and sort of turned all this into, into mush. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say that there's a silver bullet, you know, for all this type of thing. I don't think that we've, we've arrived at that yet. But what we have tried to do, and I'll, I'll just give you my words of wisdom, take them or leave them, but what what we try to do, and this is not new for us or a lot of people, but to try and I think to make this transition a little bit easier and to be a little bit more successful 
is that we, you know, we utilize, we're strong advocates of utilizing a template which incorporates and inculcates a lot of the components of the quality matters assurance process, right? So there are 42 specific review standards, if you're familiar with the rubric. Um, the template that we have built out has almost, has about 2021 of those. So just by, just by using the course template, um, you're already satisfying almost half of the quality matters assurance rubric standards right out of the gate. Just just mm -hmm. turn it on and you've got half of them right there. Now the others, we can't we can't templatize those if if I may. You you have to actually design your course, right? So those are things that we can't we can't include in a template, but we can give you the structure of the guidelines. Mm -hmm. So what we really advocated for these faculty who are completely new to this entire process to try and start using that to help streamline that process. Students have told us in nine years of research that we have done, 10 years of research ongoing, longitudinal, that they, um, and this is probably gonna send shivers up the spines of some people, but students have told us that they really want a consistent delivery process. They want, a, they want something that has a predictable format. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to be able to go into a course and understand and not have all that cognitive load of trying to find where content's located at. They yeah, want to be yeah. able to find things very quickly and easily. Mm -hmm. So the more that you can streamline where students find the content, then you're focusing on their learning and not course navigation, right? So yep, yep. we really were advocates for that. The, the flip side to that is that it starts to get into academic freedom and you know intellectual sure. property all this kind of stuff yeah so you know there's some pushback along those lines too and terry i don't want to take all your time you can jump in on that yeah um no you're you're fine i, I you know i guess you know so a few of the points i would raise here is that again if we did a better job of you know having you know and the funny thing is this is going to make faculty's lives easier right mm -hmm. um, you know, faculty don't want templates per se. They, they, they want to be able to design their courses in the way that works for their subject matter and so on. But, you know, I, I also, if, I, I know I was, you know, spent 20 years as a faculty member. Um, you know, it would be nice to have those, like I, I actually appreciated when they gave me a syllabus template because mm -hmm. I, I knew, okay, these are the elements that have to go into it. And, and you know, that makes my life you because know, to a certain extent, you know, I know from the early stages of my career, you know, you had to guess. So you, you borrowed yeah. somebody's syllabus. You know, the typical course development process in my lifetime has been you borrow somebody's syllabus, you copy it, you insert the readings and things that you want, you figure out, you know, it, the the LMS, and then you decide how much of the element, and first of all, if you're going to use the LMS, because there's right. you know, this actually one of the benefits <laughs> as somebody who's been a provost of this situation <laughs> is that faculty have to use the LMS now. Right, right. That, that's definitely a provost speaking. I'm not sure every faculty member would agree that that's a benefit, <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. But yeah, there, I have faculty who didn't want to use the LMS, you know. Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a there's a good argument um, about not using the LMS. I I think you and I have some some common friends with some folks that have been very successful with not using the LMS, mm -hmm. and and quote unquote ungrading, right? So and, and this is a big thing, right? So yeah. and. I'll just give a shout out to Laura Gibbs. You know, I think she's a thought leader in that area that and she's pretty active on Twitter and so forth from the University of Oklahoma. And, you know, she she takes her position is, is that she prefers to have students use sort of this open source tool yes. kit. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily use the structured LMS. And there's a great argument for that. I'm not advocating one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, and and the way that she structures her assignments and things, I'm getting off into the weeds a little bit, but if you're interested, I'd encourage you to talk to her about that. But, you know, she's a big champion of the student voice and student choice. Mm -hmm. So giving students, you know, some, some affordances, you know, some ownership um, uh, with respect to how they design their courses, um, what they, what sorts of assignments. So they have agency in what they're learning, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to have to have you come back and just have a discussion about the LMS. Oh, me. <laughs> yeah. I have to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of some of the LMSs out there because mm -hmm. they do, you almost feel like you're in a straitjacket. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I know that's kind of what you were, were getting at before is that, you know, faculty have to feel like they have agency. And, but, yeah. you know, I guess, anyway, we'll, we'll bring this up another time because I don't want to get yeah. too the rabbit hole of, of right, right. But 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 it, but it does speak also to like the idea that it's a it's a whole system it's an eco it's an ecosystem that you have to design for 
the LMS is frequently part of it, but like what Course Genes provides and where where Rob has spent much of his time is even before that and kind of outs, outside of that, but also powering the the LMS. The LMS is just a technology. It needs it needs a curriculum, it needs instructional design, it needs learning objectives, and faculty don't always have the tools to do that on their own. And that's why uh, for me, it's inspirational to have folks like yourselves on the show, just to kind of like demonstrate that there are folks who wanna help, there are communities of interest around this type of stuff. So people may not always be aware of that. And I think a lot of faculty are feeling isolated. It's a challenging time. And uh, the last thing they wanna do is learn a new system. So I think the idea that there's humans who can sort of scaffold that and help bring them into the the sort of digital revolution that's happening, um, I just think it's an interesting thing to take note of. And I think sometimes like, you know, like fish in a tank, like you may not, y'all are so deeply, uh, you know, inculcated in instructional design and how to do this right, that sometimes you don't even understand the value for someone who might be coming in fresh. Because to your point, I know I've heard you say this many times, Terry, like frequently faculty aren't trained in instructional design or pedagogy or or any of these things, like learning technology, like these these aren't things that people have been taught before. And it takes forward thinking organizations to kind of do more than, than the standard. Because I think the standard is frequently just shift, lift and shift, it's up to faculty and we're under-resourced. So so let's go. I don't, I don't know, do either of you have any uh, perspective on, on any of this? Do I have any perspective on this? <laughs> <laughs> think so. Um, I'd like to comment that, you know, faculty are at the hub of weaving together the input from students, industry accreditation. But part of the problem is, you know, and, and one of the biggest goals I have of, of why I started what I started with Pride and Higher Ed is we have to empower faculty. Mm-hmm. We do not empower faculty, then we can't empower students. And, and mm-hmm. you know, and we have to be more student-centered. But the problem is we give faculty all these different, um, we make faculty's lives very complicated. <laughs> you know, we say, yeah. okay, you you have to do this research, especially if you're research one institutions, you know, research, research, research. But, oh, you have to do all this service over here because we have shared governance and the institution can't run without faculty involvement. Oh, and by the way, you know, we have to teach these students, which is, should be the focus of what we do, but, you know, we're going to really push you more. So faculty feel like they're constantly... Yeah. I called it the hamster wheel Mm -hmm. because, you know, I felt like I was constantly trying to, you know, I love my students and I I want to do my, I I have so many students, former students, so I I keep in touch with and mentor and so on. And, but also, you know, I'm still a writer, you know, I'm writing all the time, you know, and, and even within political science, every year I'm doing something for the political science association, you know. Mm -hmm. So we've got all these these intertwining things, and anyway, you know, on service. I mean, yeah, I've I've gone through the ranks of, of administration and, and and all of that. So yeah. I think that um, you know what it, what it boils down to is we you know we have to support faculty. We have to. You know, I, I've been starting to talk about trauma informed leadership. Actually, I was yeah. on a panel yesterday with the Chronicle mm-hmm. of Higher Education, and I said, you know, one of the things we re- really need to do to help faculty is have trauma-informed leadership. We talk mm-hmm. about trauma-informed teaching, but if we don't shift to trauma-informed leadership, then we are going to miss out on all the issues that faculty are dealing with. And we have to find ways to accommodate all the things we have to do, but to make it feasible. So mm-hmm. you know, I see you know institutions cutting faculty and it drives me crazy because it's like you can't function and run an organization that relies on faculty to be running the place if you get yeah. rid of it. So, sorry rob i'll let you jump back in no that was great terry thank you um the um y- you know you hit on some great points there I, the um i think that all of us would agree that if, if you you know if you're involved with the faculty community the professoriate you realize just what a stressful period this is right i mean i, I don't think that we have fully embraced um, how how impactful this whole transition is, because we're throwing so much at them. You know, I mean, some of these some of these folks, bless their hearts, have never really utilized technology or whatever mm-hmm. to any serious degree. So, so we're throwing all that at them, 
<laughs> you know, yeah. plus, you know, shipping online and then the compression of the semester and high flex. It's a, yeah. it's a great format. I'm not besmirching it at all, but um, it's a lot of ask, ask anybody that's done it. And they will tell you it doubles their load. Right. Yeah. So, um, so there's, there's just so many pressures, you know, that are happening right now. And of course that sort of bubbles upward, right? So you get the administration's getting pressures, you know, from, from the, from the basements coming up and you know it's just such a i think everybody right now is just kind of on edge i think that you know most of us have just kind of agreed that you know let's not introduce anything new or crazy or start any new major initiatives yeah. um, let's just try and find some stasis here because we need to let this you know when the course of the political climate isn't helping you yeah. know we just need to find some sort of solid ground here for a while let's just cool it let's not introduce anything new <laughs> yeah. yes and and i was gonna say earlier i'm a yes and person yeah. <laughs> so it's like, so it's yeah. like <laughs> it is absolutely yeah. Yes, yeah. and though we are also dealing with a critical moment in history where, you know, I, 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 I can't not have one of our discussions not bring in the issue of demographics and, and Black yeah. Lives Matter and, mm -hmm. and, you know, the change we're seeing in the approach that many institutions are taking to these issues. Um, they're actually paying attention to them now <laughs> when they may not have in the past. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason I raise that is because, you know, when I talk about trauma-informed leadership, it, it also has to do with the fact that we have a diversifying student body. We should be diversifying the faculty and we aren't doing that enough. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I can think of so many instances where faculty are trying to work on, you know, shifting to online, you know, coming up with all these new uh, rubrics and so on and so forth. And, mm -hmm. and, and yet they know when they walk into the classroom, especially if it's a very diverse campus, that they have students who are dealing with everything from not not just because they're traumatized by what's going on with, with you know, black men and women being shot and beat, yeah. but um, also just food insecurity and, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, I the, love the, digital, the digital divide too, which is yeah, a whole nother, exactly. like, are they even logging in online, you know? Exactly. And, yeah. and so, um, you know, Diane's shouting out all of this. Yes. Uh, so I, I guess, you know, what I would love to see is for us, you know, I think what it comes down to is, you know, collaboration and not reinventing mm -hmm. the wheel and helping each other out. And we don't do that well enough. And I mean, yeah. it's interesting because as faculty, yeah, I, I'll go out and find, collaborators with on my research, but mm -hmm. as administrator, and when I was an administrator, I was pretty collaborative, but I don't think we do enough. Like, you know, I think about the fact that, um, you know, we don't even talk about you know, quality matters is out there. But when I was at my larger institutions, you know, we didn't, I wouldn't, couldn't have told you what quality matters is. You know, I, and right. it's just, you know, wasn't around when I was in the early stages of my career, but, um, it's it just drives me crazy because we don't seem to be and I started out talking about this really it, converging around some best practices and again you, you, there's academic freedom and so on but there's certain aspects of this that we should just say this is you know this is what people should be doing and and this is the way you can decide you know within this context what you're going to do but. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on students. Let's focus on their needs. Let's focus on what we want them to get out of that education. And you yeah. know, as a parent of a college student, you know that that's important to me as well as being a, a professor. Yeah, yeah. And building on that too, like another theme I've been hearing a lot is the importance of grace, like being yeah. able to give empathy. give people a little bit. Of, yeah, grace and empathy. I know uh, Terry wrote a book. Uh, yeah. She loved empathy so much. She wrote a book with that in its title. But the combination of grace and empathy, and realizing that. We don't really know what other people, what burdens other people might be bearing, and um, you know, it's interesting. I saw it. It's slightly off topic, but it may be something to come back to. I've seen a lot of uh, back and forth uh, in some of my circles around whether uh, instructors should require students to be on camera, and I think that sort of builds on the same. In essence, you want them on so that you can connect with them more and empathize more, but but who knows what they're going through? And I, I think that's also true among faculty, where like the more you can understand, they're really humans powering your environment and and like you know it's really a blend of the technology and the humanity that ultimately delivers this at the at the really next gen level and uh it's just easy to lose sight of that because i think we can we can really geek out on the technology or we can geek out on the the sort of cognitive um learning objectives but they're still like make sure people are safe making sure people are, are food secure uh they they don't feel like they're in a hostile environment they feel a sense of belonging like all those kinds of things i know that's something um, 
we've talked about a lot. But any closing thoughts? Maybe hit each of you with some uh, closing thoughts. I know we're getting close close to time. That'll serve as my closing thoughts. So thank you. <laughs> Go ahead, Rob. Well, you know, I, you both hit on some great topics there, and I'll just try and be I'll try and be succinct here. But you know, I, I, as we pivoted, you know, online and so forth, and I, I don't want to I don't want to get into COVID fatigue here too much. But you know, the thing that has surfaced and I'm very concerned about is inclusivity. I think what's happened is that it has um, this pandemic has um, exposed a lot of our institutional weaknesses. Um, and that is, you know, our assumptions, I think we're all turned inside out about mm -hmm. students having, you know, equity and parity and, and access. And that is just not true. That is absolutely mm -hmm. completely not true. We, we have found, you know, that students, um, a lot of students didn't have computers, for example, mm -hmm. they use their smartphone as their major device. They didn't have internet at home. Some of our faculty didn't have internet at home. Some of our faculty didn't have computers. Mm -hmm. um, it has really, I think, challenged our norms and our beliefs. And I think that we need to, as, an, as a, you know, as a collective, we need to go back, circle back and start to really address these problems of inclusivity and digital divide and mm -hmm. um, the diversity issues and so forth. This, what really concerns me is that this has impacted um, students of lesser means more than, than anybody else. And they're the ones that are going to be at higher risk of dropping out. They're the ones that are going to be at higher risk of all of those, those problems that are associated with, you know, you know, staying in higher education, let alone finishing it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what, if I had to leave a thought with this group, it's, you know, let's just kind of, cool it with the cool technology for a while. Let's see how we can take care of these students, particularly the underserved students, underserved populations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And, and I guess the thing I would add to that, though, is let's make life easier for faculty. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, it's, it, there's the there's the technology, but I, I also think there's ways to make things easier for faculty through the use of technology, right? Yep. It, it, it We have to be careful about having a lot of startup time but you know i know as a provost um i was struggling at times because i just had a heart you know, it was hard to be able to pull things together without technology mm -hmm. so I, I i'd hesitate to say you know we should ignore the technology because i, I do think um you know there are ways that it makes you know and, and i sometimes i think faculty don't necessarily understand the pressures the upper level administration are under um, yep. You know, we, just because we're in the COVID crisis, the creditors are still going to come back and say, you know, you didn't hit your 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 learning objectives and goals. And, you know, yeah. So, so I, we have to find a balance, right? And and that, and everything comes back to that. So I mm -hmm. guess my final words for today are, are let's find some balance between, and, and, and like I said, I think if we do more collaboration, then the the impact of, you know. Um, Doing things, these things isn't so you know onerous on uh, you know a particular faculty or staff person, mm -hmm. um, and I, I just you know I'd love to see an instructional design revolution. Yeah, <laughs> you know because I think part of the problem, and we'll have to discuss this at a you know I got another topic for us, is you know we went directly to online program management and online you know whether it was internal or external without really incorporating into the culture of higher education what it means to to teach you know in yep. the sense that you know before we thought about online we should have thought about um you know what does it mean when you have a course and it, it, it's going to you want a particular outcome from that course mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. so we've just kind of been it's it's almost as if we adopted a lot of these things you know and then turned back later and said oh you yeah. know, that's why things like Course Tune, uh, our sponsor for today, are, yeah. are coming up with these great ideas because it's like we're having to go, you know, why wasn't Course Tune there, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago when we were, you know, the online revolution was starting and, you know, we could have incorporated these things more easily. So now it's almost we're playing catch up. Right. Um, and having to say, okay, now, you know, we need to, to do this. Yeah. Although, although the, the hopeful thing there maybe is that, you know, you, you can't ignore digital anymore. Like you have to have some plan for that, some intentionality around it. Cause right now there's, there's kind of, there's no alternative. You have to, you have to leverage your digital alternative. The idea of like a, a teacher who doesn't, an instructor who doesn't 
log into her LMS, like the, those instructors are going to be in a tough spot. Uh, but, but yeah, hopefully there'll be more folks like, uh, like, uh, Terry, Rob, Diane, the folks on Tarrant, all the folks on the chat, uh, you know, to continue to engage in this conversation. We got to figure out what color berets we need for the instructional design, uh, revolution that, that's on the, on the horizon. So come back to us, uh, with that. And, uh, Rob, thanks so much uh, for uh, for joining us. I think we're pretty close to time. This is it, right? This time, yeah, Terry? Are we can, I, can I just put a quick okay. shout out in? If you have the opportunity to take Terry's leadership course, I would strongly yeah. encourage everybody to do that. Mm-hmm. That was a wonderful experience. She had a, I'm sorry, I'm being kind of gushy here, but she had yeah. just, she had a, she had several different outstanding presenters that that visit us with us each week and so forth. Highly recommend. So please <laughs> reach out. That's how we first came into contact, right? Yes, I'm like, exactly. Yeah. Joined our awesome. course. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, um, the, the proof is in the pudding, Rob. You're you're being a, an instructional leader as we speak. So uh, yes, so just good, head good job to, by both of you. Yeah. Yes, we have our new URL, brighter higher ed, but you can still go to higheredleads.com and check out our course. And the higher ed administration course is still there. And yeah. And we'll be back. We'll be back again soon. We'll be back uh, next next Wednesday uh, at the same uh, same bad time, same bad channel, uh, and uh, more more of this uh, on the horizon. So uh, thanks as always, Terry, for your time, and uh, thanks everybody for joining. And uh, and then we're done, right? We're done. Yes, we're done. That's.